morning, everyone. Uh, good morning and welcome to the four-day Big Book Study. My name is Bill Ditto, an alcoholic, and one of your hosts for this Big Book Study, I guess. I guess I need to read this, huh? Uh, I'm sure glad you could make it here today. I would like to open this meeting with a moment of silence for the alcoholic that still suffers in and out of these rooms, followed by a serenity prayer. business. You know, uh, you know what that meant. Let's tell a lie. 
And, uh, and so the wife, she leans over and looks around him and said, I told him 10 miles ago to slow down that he was going to get a ticket. And he turned to her, the husband did, and he said, shut up, I'll take care of you when I get home. God's sake. So the policeman said, besides that, he said, you left taillights out. Oh, it must have just happened. I look at my lights every time I get in the car. Turn them on and check everyone. Turn the signal, brake lights. I ever step on the brake. She leans around the cop, to the cop to see him. She says, I told him that was out six months ago. Shut up, he says. I'll take care of you and I get home. About this time, the cop, he looks around the old boy and he says to her, does he talk to you that way all the time? The only one is drunk. <laughs> I, I was against the fourth edition book because I got mine so marked up that I just I took the chance to turn it over. But I got a few things I want to tell you I've learned about by experience along the way before we get by the end of this thing. And I'll give you a little outline of what we're going to do. And I asked Mike what part of this he wanted to do, and he said, when you stop talking, <laughs> he said, I'll try to fill in a little. I said, okay, you get your wind back again. But I, I thought that he, he's pretty good. God does not call the qualified. I failed as a father. I failed as a husband. Uh, several times as a husband. Um, I, you just name it, I failed in business. I tried business five times and wrote the one. It looked like it was going to work. God said, this is not for you. And I said, oh, not now. <laughs> you know, I, you name it. I failed to try to be a big shot. I, I failed to try to be a little shot. I just failed. You know, and today, the most successful thing I've ever gotten any help on, at least, is this thing. So, this is a little, a little story about depression from a lady who did some research. And if you listen to Nell Wing, Nell Wing was an archivist, for those who don't know, and a personal assistant to Bill Wilson. She started out answering the phone there. I like to talk about people who put flesh on for you. And she came through as a part-time job and answered the phones and finally became his personal assistant and then stayed that way for years. And he, they didn't come to the office very much, uh, once or twice a week maybe. And they did most of their work at home, and she went out and typed up the work and brought it back to the office, that sort of thing. She knew them personally very, very intimately. How many people have read the new book that's out now about uh, the life story of Lois Wilson? Nobody's got that book yet? That's a great book. Uh, I, it'll bring you to tears. Uh, I have feelings today. Uh, listen to her talk about leaving her home uh, when they flew them out. After 55 years of her family living there. But uh, now Wayne talks about Bill's depression from 45 to 55. Bill wrote letters about it. I'll talk a little more about it a little later on. A little thing on philosophy, what it might mean. Uh, word glossary of words where we can all be on the same page. Here's a little, little letter from Bill about a guy. I don't know how this even got in here. I forgot to send this. This is a fellow who came to California in the early days. His name was Dewey Steves. He comes from Cleveland, Ohio. And uh, this is a letter from Bill telling him that he is 92 or 91 of the first 100. A lot of people didn't know that we had people living out here that were part of the first 100. We had a... Uh, my mind goes blank. I'm getting older. I have no senior moments. Just hang on. You'll <laughs> You'll understand. This is a four-way test used by uh, Dr. Bob. It comes from the Oxford groups as the test for your prayer and meditation. 
and whether it's you talking or God talking. It's an asset, my ability list, we'll go through this a little later. Bill writes on set, he's not a professional writer. Uh, this is really his first attempt. Uh, there's a list put out by Lois of, the, of his accomplishments in life, and as we go through the book, we're going to see how they get people asset list as they go through the book. And so we've, we've learned to do asset list here. We use them for all sorts of reasons. This, this, we gave you the pages where you're going to find the building of the arch as you go through the book. So it makes it a little easier for you. The foundation is, of course, we're going to work on the first 60 pages. This little stuff with general service office about closed and open meetings. Always oh, a lot of confusion about that. I love people that uh, call it an open meeting and then have it closed. They treat it like a closed meeting, but they call it open. <laughs> they start putting rules on it. Uh, this is some directions about taking the 12 steps. This came out of a, this little inventory package here came out of a years of traveling the road and doing these studies in, in uh, Northern California and uh, a guy named Terry and I for years. And uh, yeah, we went to, see, he went 11 years, I went 13, and then uh, began to not be able to see at night. So I thought it was a good idea to stay at home. And then people called me home and said, how about, can you find a way to do something? And I said, well, come to the house, you can do that. And so <laughs> we just, uh, we had over 40 people coming to the house on a regular basis, and that gets pretty small. So we just... We just last Saturday night, the group decided we'd move from the house, and they said, we're sure glad you did that. We've been wanting more people to come, but there's no room. So I'm still doing this kind of stuff all the time. Now, I gave you the pages where to look and where it talks about pills and drugs. and You've got nothing new on these people, let me tell you, nothing at all. I've been very privileged. Uh, I don't want to be a name dropper. I've been very privileged to interview. Uh, I have a, uh, I might as well, I'm not, I'll make it sound an advertisement really, but uh, I like things that come to me with what I call no fingerprints on because then I'm real clear about God's will. And one day I got a phone call from a lady named Janine. She says, you don't know me. Boy, that's a great start because there's no manipulation on my end. And she says, I want to give you some tapes. And I, they, I'm a friend of some friends of yours. They said, it's perfect to give you these tapes. I said, well, okay. And I've had people give me 10 or 12. I sponsor a lot of people. Give me some tapes because they know I'll use them somewhere. <laughs> and uh, I had a lot, a few tapes, maybe 150 of my own. I collected over the years just from different people. And so uh, she said, meet me at Mayhew Center. And, of course, the other side of my mind, I'm always wrong. Sweetie tells me to tell you hello. That's my significant other, I guess you call it, when you're not married. We've been together for 16 years and it's working, so we don't think we're going to change anything. <laughs> I paid rent at the house. <laughs> really works a lot better than I had to fight over money. But anyway, uh, she, she's a great gal. I, she makes me laugh like crazy. Uh, my first wife was uh, almost six foot tall, and I've always been prone to tall women, so I have four children. And they're all tall. I've got four seven foot tall. He's up in Oregon. If you want to make a 12 step call, let me know. I'll give you his address. Wish you good luck. And uh, I have a, a youngest boy has uh, been in sobriety now because of rooms like this, people like you, and I need to thank you for that. Uh, nothing I did. Uh, 11 years now. And his sister, the youngest girl, who the last time I was packing to leave home, 
was forced to call me a no-good son of a bitch uh, at 10 years of age, and I slumped down the street like a dog, and because uh, alcohol was more important to me than to with my family, and I understood there wasn't a choice today. And then I, I have, uh, so I have two kids in, in, and one needs to be, well, she's never drank any, so don't worry about it. She was suicidal over a breakup of a marriage not long ago, so I don't know. Uh, she'd drink, I think we could help her. Um,
and said he's about sobriety date in AA. They actually had more time than Bill had drive. And uh, he came to Clear Lake, California, and lived into his 90s, and uh, he was quite, quite one of those kind of characters, you know. But a lot of people, he'd sit around and talk about being one of the first 100, and people would go, that guy don't know what he's talking about. He's a little old and a little smoked, you know. Well, he did. <laughs> Pretty interesting guy. The book is laid out, and the reason they wrote the book is because once they discovered, by counting about 40 people sober, in November of 1937, so from 35 to, to uh, 30, 1934 when Bill got sober, December the 11th, he, uh, between that time, had worked with numerous people. And some people say without success. Well, that's just not true. Uh, what happened is that as he started to travel the road, he says 70-some-odd people, and as he traveled the roads at about 10 years sober, they, the groups began to grow and had enough money to invite him to come out and speak, which he did. And as he did, he started running into some of these people that he had brought the message to earlier. They just hadn't found enough bottom yet to, to want to do that. He found 62 of them that were in the program. Three were dead, and the other five, nobody knows what happened to them. So sometimes this thing is a little different. Actually, in the writing of the book, a lot of people will tell you a hundred people wrote the book. That's not true. Burwell says we probably had a hundred people around. He said they were coming and going, most of them going. He said there were about five people that were very attentive to the working of the book. They, Bill would dictate to Ruth Hawk. She would double space the book, uh, what she was writing. She, she probably wrote the book. He would just put out ideas and she'd put it in the English language and then they would sit and discuss what looked good. And then they would send that down to Akron, and they would send it over to, to New York, double-spaced, and people would make suggestions. And a tape that she did with civil corn in Southern California in the 40s, she said, make no mistake about it, this was Bill Wilson's book. And anything that went in that book, he said what went in the book, in the end, which was kind of interesting. So actually, there's a difference between writing something and editing something. Most most writers have editing, uh, their books are edited by other people, but they're not writers. And so what we're going to find in the book is Bill Wilson, if you ever, there's not two of us in this room alike. If there is, one of us is not necessary. And uh, <laughs> so we know, we know today that we know today by DNA testing that we're all different. And so you have a mind, and if you decided to write a book, which you could do if you wanted to, it doesn't mean it'd be a bestseller, but you could write one. But it would be from your mind. And as we get to your mind in this book, you're going to find out that that's why it talks about your ideas of God has to be your ideas of God. It can't be nobody else's. And so the idea that, that uh, I don't believe that <laughs> I can't change myself, we'll get into that. So that's more or less how the book got written, and eventually they get it out, and in 1937, in November, Bill is down to Akron one more time, meeting with Dr. Bob this time. And some of the miracles of this program, I'll try to go quickly with you. Bill goes to Akron after he's sober about six months. Bill had made a lot of money for a lot of people. Bill was like a lot of people I know. They're kind of like me in a way. I go to school to do this and end up going off and doing that. You know, and so Bill went to school to be a lawyer. He worked some in-between jobs. He just like any other veteran, come home and live with the folks, her folks. Uh, had a huge house. Uh, 
They, uh, she'd been raised with maids and, and uh, chauffeurs. And, uh, in fact, it was kind of interesting. The guy that was uh, drove the horses and the buggies for them, when cars came in, he retired, and the son drove the chauffeur limousine for him. So she'd been raised with wealth. Bill was raised with, his grandfather was a Scotsman that had a little money. But he, I don't know, he didn't, didn't look like wealth at that time anyway. Kind of interesting people. Lois talks about Bill's mother, her grandmother. She said she wouldn't take up much space in people's people's lives. She was very quiet and, you know, just let the world go by. So I, uh, people say I like to put flesh on people. So as we go along, I'll talk about Dr. Silkworth. There's a lot of books out today, and there's a book list here that I bought. Somebody asked me one time the books I've read. I think I've read everything ever ever written. Uh, in the in the book of the uh, Lois Bonina, she wrote, of course, she almost remembers. Some of you've read that, but this new book was written by a professional who did the Bill Wilson. My name is Bill Wilson. It was at one time supposed to be a combination of the two things, and a big motion picture was going to be made. His that's history, and he couldn't get this, he couldn't get it done, so they made him an offer to do a TV movie, which they had to shorten. And this is what was left over. This I would love to get the tape of this interview because he just sat and talked to her for hours on her back porch, and then took it from the tapes. So it's pretty accurate stuff, and uh, she takes on all the rumors in the back of the book. Including Bill's supposedly cheating with the women. And I can tell you this, that I can tell you that there are as many people that say that never happened as they are that say it did. So I have no idea what in there. She takes on the LSD experiment. She, and I'll talk some about that when we get around to this story a little bit more. Uh, he takes on all of these things that we hear all the time. I know if I'm writing a book, and I wanted to be a successful seller, and I totally don't want to take other people's inventory. I want to write about sex, murder, gambling, <laughs> stealing, <laughs> whatever else I gossip I can find. It always sells better, you know. Anyway, that's just, I get off of these things sometimes, and I'll get back where I need to be. They counted 40 people, they had a meeting of 18 in the town of Akron, which decided your faith. And uh, it was an emergency meeting, and they, they voted on three things. They thought they needed hospitals, which they did. Uh, doctor, the people in Akron did not see it the same way as the people from New York, because Akron already had a hospital. And so they had a sister up there that had gotten a seven-foot board with Dr. Bob, the angel of Alcoholics Anonymous. And, uh, you know, a uh, great story about her, a book out about her. I believe you ought to read it. It's a great book. She had her own spiritual struggles. Uh, they ended up with, uh, so they had a doctor, which was Dr. Bob. He's free. I always love free. And uh, that was a good deal. So what did they need with a hospital and a doctor? They got them all. And uh, they thought they needed paid missionaries because Bob and Bill were collecting little money, also some money given to them by Rockefeller, about five grand, and saved Dr. Bob's house. And uh, they picked up about $50 a month or 35 or something like that, small amount of money, and lived on that while they were carrying the message. And they thought they needed paid message carriers. That makes sense to me. And then they thought they ought to write a book. 
And these 18 people, like all alcoholics, you give them any kind of authority to make any kind of decision. And for God's sake, they'll take the simplest stuff. And eight committees later, in 22 years, they might come up with something, you know. But I love us. We're great people. I, you're, you're the most suspectful people I've ever known. You are absolutely the greatest that ever walked through. There's one. I see a few people here today from my area. Paging from down there and brought his faithful Indian companion with him. I see this lady here who lives in our area came up and introduced me. Her sponsor said she's coming up. I don't know why anybody would come this far except an alcoholic. Uh, I paid $20 and room rent down here for 100 bucks a night and then what they could get for free at home. I, don't, I just don't make sense, but that's all right. I'm glad to see them anyway. They made me smile. They made me smile. Anyway, those are the things, and they, they both passed very, it was a very tough vote. Dr. Bob had to get on get on and, and talk a lot, and they, they convinced them, and by about the margin of two, I think, that these decisions were made, and they said, Bill, if we need money, you need to go to New York and raise it. And that's what he did. And I brought up a tape today and uh, a CD, and I'm sure that you're going to share them. I, brought, I always bring little gifts with me of Bill in 1954 talking about how the big book was written. And uh, you, if you listen to that thing, you're going to know there's a God. Absolutely know there's a God. You know, the miracles of Alcoholics Anonymous is that an alcoholic in Akron whose business one more time is failing, and based upon his experience of helping another alcoholic or at least talking to him, he had stayed sober for the longest time in his life, which was six months, and he knew he had to talk to somebody, and he gets on the phone, and he gets a hold of a guy who'll shorten it up for you by the name of Reverend Tunks. Reverend Tunch was an Episcopal minister, and he said, I'm a rumhound from New York, and I need to find another alcoholic to talk to. Now, if you don't, for us, that's not a strange phone call. But you give that around to normal people, they're going to go, holy man, what kind of a nut have I got on the end of this phone? You know? And this, and this guy said, well, I don't know any personally, but I know some people that I know, and that led him to a woman by the name of Henrietta Stiveling. And Henrietta Stiveling was the head of the Oxford groups in that area and actually sponsored Bill and Bob in the earliest time when they were living there. And two weeks prior to that, they had had a meeting, and she had called all the people, and Dr. Bob had been going to the Oxford groups for two and a half years, Bill, for six months at the same type programs, and uh, but Bob couldn't stay sober. And so they had this meeting, and Henrietta, they called it, we're going to share something costly. We do that in AA every day. We tell on ourselves here all the time. I've never been to a church in which somebody gets up and says, you know, I'm a liar, cheating, a thief, and I can't stay sober, and I'm, I've been shooting dope, and I'm going crazy, and I beat my wife, and I'm so ashamed. And You don't hear that much down the church house, you know, or at least I have never heard it. You know? Maybe I wasn't there enough. That's probably part of the problem. <laughs> Anyway, I, I have been I have been dipped and sprinkled and spoken with and talked to and, and uh, a lot of things happen. It's a miracle. And they, she said to Doctor Bob, when you come over next week at our meeting, you're going to share something costly. We're all sharing something costly. And when it came time for his share, uh, he said, first time he ever admitted, I'm an alcoholic and I can't stop drinking. And of course they. Well, the whole group, not just Dr. Bob, they said, well, would everybody like prayer? And they said, yes. And two weeks later, a phone call comes to her house, and a man on the other end of the phone says, my name is Bill Wilson. I'm a runhound from New York, and I haven't had a drink in six months, and I must find another alcoholic to talk to. 
I don't know what you call that. I don't know what you call that. And he meets Dr. Bob, and Dr. Bob, I was fortunate to interview Dr. Bob's son for many days, and it was great. He was a great daddy interview, had great sense of humor. And uh, he's the only child. The other one was adopted, but they treated her just like she was uh, the real thing. I, uh, I'm fascinated by this kind of thing. And so she's a complete stranger. She's from a very wealthy family. Her daddy was a, a, a judge down in El Paso, Texas. She was graduated from one of the finest women's schools in this country. Uh, that's where she met the guy she married. She marries a wealthy. You'll see that on Castles of America. Stiverling was his name. And uh, John Stiverling started Goodyear Rubber Company. And so you'll see a hundred and some odd rooms they had in this place. <laughs> anyway, uh, that's just amazing. She says, come right out. Don't stretch. And he comes out and they talk and they're, they're trying to get him. Doc, Bob couldn't come. And he said, I'll, I'll go tomorrow. And he told his wife, Ann, I'll give this bum 15 minutes. And Dr. Bob was known as a snappy talker <laughs> and, uh, and stayed about five and a half, six hours, according to who you're listening to. And the beginning of Alcoholics Anonymous really took off. And Dr. Ann Smith said to Bob, why don't you invite Bill to stay with us? Bill ain't got any money, bro. And he's married. And the miracle, Bill said yes. Yes, that the mother even asked him, and yes, that he even said yes. And he stayed there, and they didn't know it at the time, but they, they, the formation of the first need of Alcoholics Anonymous in Akron, Ohio, took place. That's why we have Founders Day there every year. Okay, I go that's enough of that. I'll talk to you in between time. Anything that I can answer, I will. I don't know everything. Uh, some things that you know, I don't know. One of the first things why we used to have conventions in the beginning of conventions was that people would come from all over the country and they would sit down in the coffee room and they'd share experience, strength, and hope and they'd talk about their groups and what do you do about this and what do you do about that, you know, and they were just, that's, that's the way we're founded. So they decided to write this book and they did so. And how's the book laid out? Well, the book is laid out with the first 60 pages to convince you. You come to page 60, the book says after the ABCs, which are the first two steps, it says being convinced. Being convinced of what? Being convinced of the first two steps. <laughs> it says we're at step three. Once I'm convinced. What is step three? Step three is the decision to go four through nine to get into fit spiritual condition. If you do that and you do 10 and 11, you can stay at fit spiritual condition. Does that make sense to you? And 12 is the word. My first sponsor says the only step you can work out of order is 11. And when we get to 11, we're going to look at the 24-hour program. That's what 11 is. It was called, it'll put you to bed, it'll wake you up, it'll take you through the day. All you have to do is follow the directions. And in the long run, the book served as sponsor. How's that for you? Does that make any sense to you? So the book, and the idea was that if they kept going the way they were and they could only get 40 people sober in a, in a few years, my God, the alcoholics are dying left and right. And so they needed a way to get it out there. And a number of the states in the United States actually started on the book. And I'll give you this little story. There's a lady by the name of Mrs. Orm. 
And she's really in room. She's newly married, and it's, it's 1939, and the great crash of 29, and her husband's a contractor and his brother, and they have this upper floor, these big mansions, and they have a bedroom and a living room and a, and a bath and a kitchen, and downstairs they have three bedrooms and a bath, and she's written the rooms out trying to help out keep the family going. And she rents to a guy by the name of Ted C. And Ted C. is an alcoholic. He is a periodic, according to some history. But he, every time he goes, he goes completely off. And he sees the nut houses more than the average person five or six times. And she takes a real interest in him and tries to help him. There was a man by the name of Gabriel Heater years ago that had a radio program. If you're as old as me, you might remember that guy. And he was a very snappy guy, you know, to the ships at sea, da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da, you know. And he'd give you this story behind the story. And, and people, he was a big-time guy. And there's a fellow by the name of Morgan Ryan. And Morgan Ryan had just gotten out of the Greystone Asylum, and they were trying to figure out how to get the message out. And he says, I know people here because I used to be in the advertisement business, and if you'll let me uh, approach him, I think he'll let me be on this program. And he was. And he got on the program and he did a fine job. The only problem that they had with him was that they figured out he hadn't been sober but a few days. And out of Greystone, they weren't too much sure they could trust him. And this was so important that they got a room down to YMCA. They locked him up for two weeks and guarded him. <laughs> to make sure he's going to be sober for the show. <laughs> and Morgan didn't make it, unfortunately. And But he did a fine act in that one. And she heard that show, and it was one of her favorite shows. She sent and got the first book about the Northern California that I know of. Now, if you're in this area, it might have been something a little earlier. I don't know. But that's the first one, at least in the San Francisco area, that was to show up. And, of course, it was read. Okay. So we kind of got an outline of the book, so let's go to work here and see if we can't uh, figure out some of this book. I can tell you what I do a lot of. Uh, on the front of my book, I write God stories. They're my God. So God is an experience, and I've had lots of God experiences in this program, and I write God stories in the front of the book. The reason I do that is because if I if I begin to get a little lost or something like that, or I get a little doubtful of what's going on, I go to my God stories. It always helps me. And if you make a list of God stories in your life, I guarantee you. I didn't finish the tape story. See how I wonder all? <laughs> anyway, this gal tells me to come down to... May you center and, and what they don't want I can have. And going down there, I'm saying they'll take all the good stuff. I'll get all the bad stuff. You know, I'm always wrong. That, that's that's the watchword at our house. My sweetheart and I are always saying to each other, "Aren't you tired of being wrong?" You know, because I'm always wrong. I don't know why. I think I I think I can think. I think you know. So anyway, I ended up uh, going down there, and she I walked over, and she ran over and introduced herself, and she said, uh, "They don't want any of." Them. I said, really? I, I mean, the most anybody ever gave me was like 20 one time. You know? Of course, my mind thinks it's 20. Yeah. I said, how many do they have? I said, 5,000. I said, wow, 5,000. What are we doing here, guy? So I pack them up in about 30 reels, reels, and I put them in the car, and I take them home, and I'm sitting there, and I'm pushing stuff with Sweetie's got the garage full of stuff. None of my stuff is. I'm pushing her stuff around and making room, and, and I'm saying to God, what are we doing here? He said, inventory. I said, okay, I can do that. <laughs> So I put them in ABCs. About a week and a half later, through a, I'm not going to go into a long story about this, through a whole series of things, I ended up with 15,000 more. And so I said, what am I doing here, God? And my dedication to this library is to record everything from the 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, and 70s I can put my hands on. 
So if there's anybody here that has any of that old recordings, if you'll let me know, I'll put them on CD for free for you, just to get them. And I cleaned them up and all that. Got, that's come a long way. And I now support five libraries uh, throughout the country. So I, I want to, I want to get that old message back out here again. So we're going to take a look at um, a little bit. We get into the additions a little bit, and uh, I'm not going to mess with the story part. You can look at those. But I am going to start with the XI. If you have XI in your book, and it's called the preface, and uh, we'll talk about this is the third edition. And uh, everybody with me? I don't, I'll run off and leave you. Sometimes you have to slow me down once I get rolling. I act like a, I like, act like an alcoholic on speed. <laughs> you know how to, if you ever go out to do a, I do a lot, of, well, I used to, I don't do it so much anymore, I'm getting a little older. Uh, somebody asked me the other day how old I was, and I said I'm 82. They said, my God, you look good for 82. And I said, that's because I'm 72. But that's, but now you know what kind of guy you got in front of you, you can't trust, I can't even trust me, so I don't know, you know. So he said, this is the third edition of the book, Alcoholics Anonymous. The first edition appeared in April of 1939. And in the following 16 years, more than 300,000 copies went into circulation. The second edition published in 1955 reached a total of more than 1,150,000 copies, which I think proves that their idea of getting the book out there was a good idea. And it worked pretty well. Because this book has become the basic text, what kind of a book is a textbook? Every one of you knows what a textbook is. It's what they gave you when you went to school. The one where you tore the pages out and ate them, you know. The ones that you didn't want to open up and look at. The one that the girl in front of you was good at, you copied over her shoulder. That's what I did. So they helped such large number of alcoholic men and women to recover their existing sentiment against any radical change being made in it to this day. The fourth edition did not change the basic text of Alcoholics Anonymous. It changed the stories bring it more current. So, has been left untouched, of course, revision made for both the second and the third edition. The, sec the section called The Doctor's Opinions Kept Intact, this is originally written in 1939 by the late Dr. William B. Silkworth, our, our society's great medical benefactor. What a guy. they got a book out on him nowadays. Great story. The second edition added the appendices, the 12 traditions, and the directions for getting in touch with AA. But the chief change was in the section of personal stories, which was expanded to reflect the publisher's growth. Bill's stories, Dr. Bob's Nightmare, and one other personal history from the first edition was retained intact. Three were edited, and one of these was retitled. New versions of two stories were written, with new titles. Thirty complete new stories were added, and the story section was divided into three parts under the same heading that is used now. In the third edition, part one, Pioneers of AA Stands Unchanged, nine of the stories in part two, they stopped in time, are carried over from the second edition, eight new stories have been added, in part they lost nearly all, eight stories have been retained, five are new. I don't know why that's so important. All changes made over the years of the big book, AA's members find nickname for this volume, have had the same purpose, to represent the current membership, Alcoholics Anonymous more accurately. That's exactly right. And thereby to reach more alcoholics. If you have a drinking problem, we hope that you may pause in reading one of the 44 personal stories and think, yes, that has happened to me. It's a book of experience. It is a book written for alcoholics, by alcoholics, and to alcoholics. <coughs> Normal people. 
unless you're very good, will not understand this book. It, it, it won't make sense to them because it doesn't have an experience to them. So it said, and more important, yes, I felt like that. Or most important, yes, I believe this program can work for me too. What the stories are in the book for is to help you to be convinced that many old timers in a part of the different parts of the, this AA has not done the same all over. Please believe me. And so if you show up somewhere and you've never been there before and they don't start the meeting with how it works, <laughs> don't get excited. <laughs> it, it's still AA. <laughs> That's wonderful. Up here in the Hill Country, some of them, they read more about alcoholism. Anybody been to some of those meetings up here? Yeah, they read more about alcoholism. And they do it really well, too. I know some of them can quote it. Uh, in the original text, they wrote a 400 loose loop uh, manuscript as part of the sales device. With this program, the bargain Ryan was going to be on with Gable Heater, the, the obvious quick thinking Hank Parkhurst, Bill said, was quicker than he ever thought of being, and he was pretty quick. Uh, suggested that they take the last of their money and put out a three-by-five card and write to doctors west of the Mississippi River and send out everything that they could to all those that might be interested. And uh, they got back. Uh, they were so disappointed. They went down with suitcases, if you can believe that. And they were so disappointed, and they looked in the little glass part, and there was like 10 or 12 cards, and there was eight, something like that, not very many. Only three of them were legible. Uh, written by drug doctors, and uh, <laughs> and you can't read their handwriting, and they've been using them with the glass sitting on them, stained them. But uh, they were very disappointed, and then the sheriff came and moved them out. It was a you just go through that that CD I bought you, you you believe that we're here as a miracle. And uh, in the original uh, story, they had 28 stories. And of the 28, 14 of them stayed sober. Uh, it's amazing. Uh, now, we're not talking about lightweight. I drank a little too much booze, <laughs> and I felt bad on Sundays. Uh, most of these people have been in the insane asylum. They've been in Joe's Rose. who have been in Bellevue 32 times, eight times in the mental hospital. And he will come out to get sober. 14 got drunk. Of the 14 that got drunk, seven came back which gave them a 75% rate of recovery. That's amazing. Clarence Snyder talks about a 93% rate of recovery, and so his history writing, I believe him, and I know that Bill Wilson talks about an 85% rate of recovery. And I have sponsored enough people that I can take 100 plus, many, many more, and tell you my rate of recovery is around, not mine, but God's rate of recovery with what I'm doing through this book is about 85%. And I have many of them are dead today. I have a box of people that couldn't get past the third step, and I put them in a box, and that's what they're happening. I don't they die a lot of times. It's a sad thing, and I tell people when I sponsor, I'm going to be, if you don't run from me, I won't run from you, and I will stay with you whether you die from this disease or whether you, and so I attend the funerals. I think that's part of my responsibility. Let's look at the fourth to the first edition. We're going to start with, this is the fort as it appeared the first printing of the first edition. I do this because there's a lot of history here. So we have alcoholics and arms of more than 100 men and women who have recovered from a seemingly hopeless state of mind and body. There is no known cure to alcoholism. It is one of the oldest diseases in recorded history. You can read about it in Proverbs of the Bible. Great description by Solomon. 
Uh, you can read about it. It goes back. Magnum Husk was a guy. I won't go into all that stuff, but he's a guy that's a doctor from over in uh, Europe somewhere. He said he coined the word alcoholic. So he was a doctor. So they've been dealing with us for a long time. Uh, they've tried everything in the world. They've tried every uh, medication in their pharmacies. They have done all kinds of things. They used to, uh, in the 20s, they, in, in, right up into the 30s, they used to think this was uh, hereditary, and they would take you to the insane asylum where they just signed, anybody could almost put you in. And they would sign you up, and uh, of course it doesn't take but about four days, 72 hours to get the alcohol out of us, and we're back to being almost normal. That's what drives us. Psychiatrists crazy, you know. <laughs> we act crazy when we're drinking, but when we're sober, we act much like normal people, because we are. That's the whole story. And uh, seemingly hopeless state of mind and body comes from the idea that uh, the world, the doctors at least said there's no medical cure for this thing. So we shouldn't recover. So seemingly, seemingly not supposed to recover. To show other alcoholics precisely how we have recovered is the main purpose of this book. That makes sense to you? So they wrote it down. They wrote the formula for recovery in this book. It is the first time that I know of that's ever happened. We are the longest lasting uh, society of men and women in the face of this earth. We've never been here before. We have had more, we are nothing as close to us. I had some people talking to me the other day about they know people's face, so it may be true. There's nobody even close to us. There's about two and a half million of us. Never has happened before. Never. Not in the face of history. So you have to read the history of alcoholism, but I don't have time to do all that. But uh, if you want to, there's lots of good books around. There's lots of history to read. Uh, and I guarantee you that you get to an understanding from that historical, this is not supposed to happen. We're not supposed to be here. 97% of all alcoholics will die untreated. We're a very small percentage. But of that percentage, those who take the steps, we give them a 75% opportunity to recover. So that's the basic picture. And so it's important that we give away what works, not what we think. I'm not into that stuff at all. So... It says to show up other alcoholics precisely how recovery is the main purpose of this book. Precisely is the key word. Well, then we hope that these pages will prove so convincing no further authentication will be necessary by your own experience. We think this account of our experience will help, other, uh, uh, will help everyone to better understand the alcoholic. Do not <clears throat> Many do not comprehend that the alcoholic is a very sick person. It took years to convince people this wasn't sick. Or it wasn't some kind of self uh, thing that you're doing to hurt yourself, that it was a true disease. So, and that's what Marty Mann and the National Council was all about. And there's some miracle stories over there, too. So, they think that everybody ought to read the book. And so, in the early days, as we're going to see, when we get to working with others, we get the idea that this, they're just talking about 12 step work with other alcoholics. There wasn't anybody else around but us in those days. And so to wise, to the family afterwards, and to the employer, all about us working with those people. And it gave you a little different view of the book a little bit. Today, a lot of that's gone away because of the fact that now when came in, some of that went away. And when doctors and hospitals begin to take us in, some of that went away. So you don't see the wet plus that work today that you used to see. But I think it's very important. 
I have a sponsor. I have a sponsor. I got one now. It's quite a guy. He's, he's really funny. Uh, he's got funny stories about 12-step work. It says, and besides, we're sure our way of living has its advantages for all. Absolutely. Why would that be? Well, we're, I, I asked my first sponsor. I said, because I'd gotten past. I had this band on my arm that told me that I was in the hospital somewhere. Knew everything, right? When he asked me questions, I wanted to hand him my CEO card. Uh, he looked at me like I was nuts, and I was. Uh, he, uh, I said to him, what is a principal, John? And uh, I thought I knew what it was. He said, it's the truth of all that governs the spirit. Now, that's a whole interesting concept. Because if it's a truth of all that governs the spirit, then it applies to not just alcoholics. It applies to all people. And anybody who will live this way of life will get the same results. Behind every step, there's a principle, and I'll get them to you in a little while. They vary from place to place. Uh, you may say, well, that's not what my sponsor told me. Well, use what you got, you know. AA is not the same everywhere. So it says, here's the first time they talk about what we call traditions. It says, it's important we remain anonymous because we're too few at the present to have the overwhelming numbers of personal appeals which may result in this publication. Being mostly business or professional folks, we could not well carry on our occupation at such an event. We'd like it understood our alcoholic work is an advocation, something we did after we earned the living for the family. If that makes sense to you. In writing or speaking publicly about alcoholism, we urge each of our fellowship to win his personal name, designating himself instead as a member of Alcoholics Anonymous. Oh, my, I could give you hours and hours of discussion on we, You know, alcoholics all, they come in and they, they think nothing's ever happened that's new like this, and maybe we want to get on the radio. And I tell them that's already been done. And, you know, <laughs> they've been on stages with masks on. They've been with their backs to the crowd. They, you know, they've done a little bit of everything. There's, there's a guy named Eddie, which was called the Prince of the Twelve Steppers in San Francisco. Uh, Fitzgerald, I think his last name was. And Eddie married a San Salvadorian girl and moved to San Salvador in the early days of AA. And he is AA. And he starts AA down there. Well, they get so interested in all this thing that they put it on the radio at, at uh, Siesta Time. <laughs> It's like as the world turns, you know, and they would they would have the woman on saying, "Will Jack drink tomorrow?" You know, <laughs> and the whole outfit, the whole country just they they fell in love with the thing. They just you know they did the same thing in San Francisco. So all this stuff's been done. I'm pretty excited about it. You know? <laughs> when Ryan is speaking for me, but I we, we urge each of our fellowship to admit his personal name, designating himself instead of a member of alcohol. I do not practice anonymity in the fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous. I practice anonymity at the level of press radio TV and film. Wilson said, if I practice anonymity in the fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous, I guess the way you get a hold of me is you call the operator and say, hey, I need, I'm a drunk and I need a drunk like Don Brown to talk to. He's about six, seven, weighs about 300 pounds. <laughs> do you happen to know where he lives? <laughs> that don't work. <laughs> got to tell him your name. So we actually asked the press also to third this request for otherwise we should be greatly handicapped. We're not an organization in the conventional sense of the word. There are no fees or dues whatsoever. The only requirement for membership is an honest desire to stop drinking, and they drop that. 
they decided no alcoholic to be honest. <laughs> well, mainly because in the, when you get into the disease, I cannot tell the truth from the false because the disease blinds me through an obsession. There's no way for me to truly be honest. So they took that out, just drinking nowadays. I, I love alcoholics enough. God, we're the greatest people in the world, I'm telling you. Have you ever been in a meeting where a wet drunk comes in? I love it. And the other alcoholics get their nose up in the air. Like, do you see that? Holy mackerel, look at that. What are we doing here? <laughs> this is what we do. And all of a sudden, we get real quiet. Well, I've been sober, you know. Oh, no, you're a terrible guy. You, you know. Now, we're not allied in any particular faith, sector, denomination, nor do we oppose anyone. That's a great lesson. We do not oppose anyone or any place or anything. We should be interested to hear from those who are getting results. Oh, I'm sorry. We simply wish to be helpful to those who are afflicted. That's it. That's all. Let me tell you the highest office in this land of AA. Do you know what it is? Sober. That's the highest you can get here. You're not going to get no higher. So you just accept that and live with it. Sober. That's it. So, so it says, we shall be interested to hear from those who get, this is New York. Now they're talking about Bill. We shall be interested to hear from those who are getting results from this book, particularly from those who have commenced to work with other alcoholics. Sponsorship. We should like to be helpful to such cases. Inquires by scientific, medical, and religious societies will be welcome. They didn't know the book was going to work. They didn't know it was going to work. So, yeah, I want to hear <laughs> what's going on. And it worked. Forward to the second edition. It was given in the forward to the Second edition uh, describes the fellowship and was in 1955, so they're going to give you some history from somewhere around June the 10th. Some of the bills in here, too. So around June the 10th of what we call of, of 35, about 20 years, and they're going to give you a little history. So since the original forward to the book was written in 1939, a wholesale miracle has taken place. That is correct. That is absolutely true. When we get to talking about self-worth, that's when my friend Mike gets to talk. I'll give you some facts about him. This disease beat him into submission so that he could accept what happened in his hospital when it was not scientific. Do not look for scientific results here. The brightest people of the world have never, I'm done, have never figured it out. Never. Carl Jung, the great psychiatrist, called it a phenomenon this doctor here was a pretty good guy. Self-worth said, I don't understand it. Didn't have to understand. I'm having eight people. Man, I have to understand it before I can do it, you know. <laughs> right. So that's good. Smartest guys in the world can't figure it out. So he said, I always, wholesale America, so I always printing voice to hope that every alcoholic whose journey will find the fellowship of alcoholics and homicide at his destination. Why? Because you have a solution. That's what separates you from everybody else. That solution we talk about is called there is a solution. That's what makes AA different than anything else out there. And that and it works. Obviously testimony in this room. 
so we're not, I, people come in and see us sometimes, and I think they think that we are a group therapy. We are not group therapy. I'm here to apply a spiritual solution to a physical and mental problem, which there is no known cure. That's the only reason we're here. And they think they're not the same. They'll never want them to stop living. And if they could ever find a cure other than this that produces more than 75%, let me know. I'll go join them. The disease is that powerful. It's still killing most of the people that have it. So it says already, uh, already it says, continues the early text, twos and threes and five of us have sprung up from other communities. That's it. We are the true grassroots worker. When they thought they had to have paid message carriers, what did they get? They got us. I don't know if anybody works for money. Well, <laughs> there's a difference between working in uh, treatment centers and, and being a, carrying a spiritual message. But, uh, and they're necessary. They're good things to have. I, I really like that. Sixteen years was the lapse between our first printing of this book and the presentation in 1955 or a second edition. In that brief space, Alcoholics Anonymous has mushroomed into nearly 6,000 groups whose membership is far above 150,000 recovered alcoholics. There's no plan like a business plan. There wasn't a business plan. We're not an autonomy. The freedom that you have to move spiritually as God would have you is what developed this program. And there's many inspiring stories of people who did exactly what they thought they ought to do. There's no central office to tell them anything. They stepped out and did what they thought God ought to have them do. We are amazing. I get letters. I got guys I sponsor that are in Akbar or Arabia. I got, it's hard to feature that, isn't it? I said to him the other day, I said, you got to find out. He's pretty tight. but he's smart. He found out on the computer how to call me for four cents a minute. And we're talking. And I said, well, how's the meetings? He said, well, we got one. He's 35 years old, this guy. He said, we got one with a guy that's about as dry as I was when I was 20 years sober. And he said, I can't stand him, so I don't go there. And I said, well, I said, well, how's your meeting? And he said, well, we have Buddhists and Muslims and all kinds of people and Sufis. And, and he said, it's great. We have great discussions. I said, well, what do you do? And he said, we listen to your recordings <laughs> on Friday for two hours. I said, oh, give me a break. <laughs> anyway. So the groups will be found in each of the United Hundreds said uh, whose membership is far above 150,000 recovered alcoholics. Never had happened in the world before. Some people talk about the Washingtonians. The Washingtonians probably, according to what estimate you want to believe, they talk about 600,000 people, but all of those were not alcoholics. And it's because they were letting everybody in. About 150,000 maybe alcoholics, but they didn't last long. Groups will be found in each of the United States, all the provinces of Canada, areas flourishing communities in the British Isles, the Scandinavian countries, South Africa, South America, Mexico, Alaska, Australia, and Hawaii. All total promising beginnings have been made in some 50 countries and U.S. possessions. Some are just now taking shape in Asia. Many of our friends encourage us by saying that this is but a beginning of the auger of a much larger future ahead. Augers are the tips of a bit. Here's a little history for you. The spark that was to flow through the first AA group was struck at Akron, Ohio in June of 1935 during a talk between a New York stockbroker and an Akron physician. Six months earlier, the broker had been relieved of his drinking obsession. 
by a sudden spiritual experience. I'll give you a definition to help you along here. Experiences are something that takes place right now that's usually accompanied with, in Bill's case, wind, uh, wind of spirit, uh, some kind of audio things happen sometimes, but it's an experience that takes place. It's transformation of Paul to Saul right now kind of thing. Awakenings are the way I came to it over a period of time. And in this program, if you stay with it, you will develop over a period of time. Following a meeting with an alcoholic friend who had been in contact with the Austrian groups of that day, his name was Eddie Thatcher, the alcoholic friend, Eddie Thatcher. Might as well tell you the story of Eddie, another miracle. Eddie's dad, George, was a very rich man. He had a foundry. They made iron stoves in the days that iron stoves were being sold. They also made trains for wheels. There were six brothers, or seven of them. I guess two of them died. Five of them, I think, existed. Brother Jack was the mayor of Albany. Eddie was a grunt. Everybody worked for Dad's company. And they started up from the bottom, and uh, he, that's how they learned the business. When, when, uh, when his dad died, the crash of 29 had hurt him some, like he did a lot of rich people, but they still had some, and he'd be inherited as part of the money. Eddie was an embarrassment to the family because Jack would be political and they had drinking at the political parties, and Eddie would show up for the free booze, and he looked a lot like Jack, and everybody said the mayor is drunk, and it really wasn't the mayor, it was the brother. <laughs> you know, yeah, did you ever hear money from home? Rich people used to get rid of their problems by sending them away somewhere and, and send them money to support them and say, if you come home, we'll cut off your money. <laughs> that's how they get them out there. And that's what Abby kind of is doing up in. He goes up to Manchester. a very rich community, uh, much like some of the top areas. And uh, people that lived there had a lot of money. And Bill's about seven or nine miles from there is where he was raised. And he went to school. And that's how he got to know the factory. And uh, Eddie had, uh, they had a, what they call blue laws in those days, three strikes and you're out kind of deal. And if you were in drunkenness of any kind in that town, three times you went to the house. And or if you committed a crime, you got to go to jail. Now, Eddie's dad, even though he was dead, I'll show you how big time he was. He did business with a kid by the name of uh, Todd Lincoln, who was Abraham Lincoln's son. And they built a golf course which still exists in a hotel that still exists in Manchester and is played in the PGA today. So his dad was no small potatoes guy. And, of course, uh, they go before a judge, and uh, after the three strikes are out, I won't go through the stories, there's lots of stories about it, and he ends up in front of the judge. And uh, he should have gone to the insane side, and Prattleburg was the name of the place. And instead of that, as they're talking, thank you, as they're talking, he, uh, he will, uh, a young man by the name of Seaver Grace was there, and a guy named Chet Cornell was there, who were schoolmates of Bill's, of, of, uh, well, of Eddie and Bill, really. And another guy by the name of Roland Hazard. And the Hazard family, there's another big time guy. Uh, Roland Hazard's family owned linen mills. They had five big mills. They came over on the Mayflower. They have a, an archive of their own family history that's huge. Uh, this guy was being, when we get to Roland, we'll talk a little more about him, but he's being groomed to run these companies. 
And that company is now today Burlington Industries. That'll give you an idea of the size of this thing. And they were interested in coloring their cloth, and they have outlined chemical. That's where William Hazard came from. That's who he was being groomed to operate in, and he couldn't stay sober. And that's, he'd been educated and trained to do that. So he'd gotten sober in the Oxford groups, and he, he comes to court. And an interesting thing, there are some honest people out there. There are some good, good people out there. And so this guy, this Graves, is making a, making a plea to the court. And he's saying, would you please not put him in, in the insane asylum? Would you please give him parole and call him in Roland's name, and perhaps we could help him? And the guy sitting on the fence said, I'll do that. Very unusual. Wonder why. I don't know what you call this, but I call it the hand of God. His name was Judge Graves, and Siegel was his son. And Roland Hazard had helped his son to get sober. And he had enough honesty and respect, probably for George, to give Evie a chance. And that's how Evie gets to New York. And he's working at the mission in New York, the Sam Shoemaker's church on the Calvary Mission, goes to Seville, which we'll see more of that story. So he goes, now Bill, when he went to school, he went to an electrical engineering school called Northridge. They also had a state militia there, which he joined, which is how he gets to be a lieutenant later on. And uh, he gets to the junior year. They have a hazing incident, and they throw down World War One breaks out, and they bring the class back because they need people. And in that school, they taught him how to solve a problem. So he knew how to solve a problem. First, you got to know what the problem is, first in the heart program. You got to know what the problem is. My power is around, oh, that's my problem. And my life is unmanageable. Now, the second thing he knew was that you need a solution. And he's going to get this solution. He's going to get the problem from Silkwood, as we read a little further. He's going to get the solution from Carl Young. He called him a co-founder of AA, who wrote and Hazard, through the Oxford Trips. And he's going to, and he needs a plan, program of action see, to solve the problem. So first he says, what is the problem? I'm powerless over alcohol. What's my solution? Came to believe the power greater than myself and restore me to sanity. What's the plan, program of action to apply the, the solution which will solve the problem? I, if my son is up in Oregon one day, an example. We go up to visit. I don't fight the disease. We go camping. I buy him a case of beer. I don't want him to suffer, you know. <laughs> or I'm trying to help him get to his bottom one. I don't know which. Anyway, I'm, he tells me, oh, Dad, he says, I, I've got this uh, car, uh, and it, it's, uh, it's out at the fuel pump quit working on. I said, okay. So I said, don't worry about it, son. Uh, we'll go by and pick up some uh, I'll get your brother. We'll come by and pick it up. You got some tools? Yeah, yeah, I got some with me. So we get the two, about $20 worth. We go out there and we go to work on this thing. And uh, we put a new fuel pump on it. It's still going to work. I said, you sure you got gas? Oh, yeah, Dad. It's out of gas. My friends told me it's out of gas. They ain't got it with that. That's the problem. Okay. Well, we're getting hot and it's not running. So we're getting, we're, we decided we better bring in one of them shade yard. He lives out in the country. He always got a shade yard mechanic up there. And so he, we call in one, an expert. He comes in the next day and he says, you got gas? And, and he says, oh, sure, I got gas. So he says, okay, take the cap off. He don't believe him. Good, good mechanic. He goes and takes the line off to the fuel pump. He says, I'm going to blow through here. If you don't 
but he don't want to admit that it is wrong. And so he said, well, I can't hear nothing. Now let me blow on the thing. So he goes and blows on it. The guy reaches over, gets two gallons of gas, pulls it in the car, hooks everything back up, and we run. I said, how much are we? He said, nothing. <laughs> so I gave a great big old roll we got in that morning at breakfast. She took that. But that's a See, if you don't know what the problem is, now the solution ended up that we now have two fuel pumps at work. So, <laughs> well, that's the whole deal here, if you don't understand the problem. See, see, he had that formula in his mind, and so when he heard the people talk, see, he knew what he, when he heard what he needed. That's how this thing just didn't come by accident. It came, maybe it's God's will. I mean, he had to have that information to make this work. So he goes on and he says, uh, the ostrich groups of that day, my friend had been in contact with the ostrich groups of that day. He also been greatly helped by the late Dr. William D. Silkworth, a New York specialist in alcoholism, who's now accounted no less than a medical safe day. Members, the story of the early days of our society appear in the next pages. Now, he's going to tell you what he got from the doctor who got step one. He said, uh, from this doctor, the broker had learned the great nature of alcoholism. Mental obsession and physical allergy. That's what he got from it. He knew the problem. I've got a mental obsession and a physical allergy. I'm not just a bum. I'm not just crazy. There's something really wrong with me. And that made sense to him. See, the alcoholic has to work from his experience. And he has to relate to what the doctor said. That's the reason why you can talk to another alcoholic like nobody else can. So he says, from the doctor... He had learned the great nature of alcoholism, though he didn't. <clears throat> he said that he could not accept all the tenets of the Oxford group. Have I skipped something here? Yeah, no, I'm all right. Great nature of alcoholism, though he could not accept all the tenets. Tenets are principles. But the Oxford group, he was convinced of the need for moral inventory. We have a moral inventory. It's called step four. He says, confession of personal defects. We have that. Call step five. He says, restitution to those harmed. We call it eight and nine. Capitalist to others. We call it step 12. Practice these principles in all of our affairs. And the necessity of belief in and dependence upon God. We call it two, three, and eleven. Make sense to you? That's what he extracted from a huge program of the Oxford Group. The Oxford Group was started by a guy named Frank N.D. Bookman. He was a Lutheran uh, Harvard graduate. He will never marry. And he believed that the church had gone astray, much like Martin Luther had. And so he set out on what they call the first century Christianity, which he wanted to return to the roots of the Bible and practice Christianity exactly as close as they did at that time. And from that, he developed all kinds of stuff. And if you want to know about the Oxford group in more depth, read anything by Dick Burns. You cannot go wrong with Dick Burns. So he's written, I've read every book he ever wrote. I quit looking for history when I found him. So that is where your steps come from. Now, I can show you, uh, you know what page that's on where the Dr. Bob's working with the, you remember that short? Uh, well, I'm going to look for it here. I don't know why I 
back in. Oh, here it is. I just, I locked into it. 292 of the third edition. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, 292. You may not have it in the fourth edition book, but in the third edition book you'll have it. That's why I kind of hate all this stuff. Ah, oh, there's the help we needed right there. I knew somebody come through for us. I told you I was done. I have senior moments. Don't get too excited if I say, what am I doing here? That's <laughs> so we're going to see an example of Dr. Bob working steps. And this gentleman's name, I'll get over here to his name, give you a little history on it. His name is Earl Tree. And he starts AA in Chicago, Illinois. His date of survival was 7 to 37. And uh, Sylvia Kaufman helped him. He's AA number 13 in Akron. He also suggested that the points should be called traditions rather than points to assure our sobriety. He had one slip. He was on the board of trustees a couple of years. So he says, Wednesday, and Dr. Bob, and right at the top of the page, afternoon off, he had me down at the office and spent three or four hours only going through the six-step program as it was at that time. Formally going through the six-step program. So he says, one, complete deflation. We call it powerlessness. Two, dependency and guidance from a higher power. We call it two, three, and eleven. Three is moral inventory. He got sober in April of 1937. So I know about when these steps were being, he lived with Dr. Bob. In fact, his young Smith knew him. That's what I like about young Smith. He was 82, he's dead now, but that's what I liked about him. He knew all these people. He says, uh, three, moral inventory, we call it step four. Five, we call it confession. Uh, four is confession. Five is restitution, eight and nine. And six is continued work with other alcoholics in 11 and 12. When Bill goes into the hospital, he asks Eddie, what is that formula for getting sober? And Eddie gave him five points to work with. It's over the years, somewhere or another, it folded into six, however you look at it. And they were changed around the country from time to time a little bit. Here's what sponsors do. Dr. Bob led me through all these steps. And at the moral inventory, he brought up some of my bad personal Traits or character defects such as selfishness, conceit, jealousy, carelessness, intolerance, ill temper, sarcasm, and resentment. Dr. Bob is a tough sponsor. I can hear him now. You're a lying SOB. No. <laughs> we went over these at great length, he says. And then he finally asked me if I wanted these defects of character removed. We call it step six today. And when I said yes, we both knelt at his desk and prayed, each of us asking to have these defects taken away, step seven. And I do that sometimes today with people, and I know some sponsors that still do that. He says the picture is still vivid, and if I live to be a hundred, it will always stand out in my mind. I was very impressed. I wish that every AA could have the benefit of the type of sponsorship today. Do not. The word sponsorship has been with us from the very beginning. It came over from the Oxford groups. Some people say there's no mention of sponsorship in this book. Oh, yes, there is. And if you're looking at the I gave you, you'll find out what page it's on. It's always been with us. It's suggested in Bill's story 
from the beginning, and we'll be looking at it. In which I made it said it said uh, I know it helped. It said sponsored. Doctor Bob always emphasized the religious angle very strongly. I think it helped. I know it helped me, Doctor Bob. Led me through the restitution steps. We call it eight and nine, in which I made a list of all persons I had harmed, and I worked out ways and means of slowly making restitution. We call it nine. I made several decisions at that time. One of them was I would try to get a group started in Chicago. The second was that I would have to return to Akron to attend meetings at least how often? I want to see if you're reading. Every two months. Hold it. How'd that guy stay sober? My God, how do you do that? Two months? Well, I'll die without a meeting. I, I, I could barely get up here. Hey, he's going to have to drive me home tonight so I can make my meeting. Obviously, I make a little joke. Obviously, these people did not believe that you stayed sober on meetings. Not that meetings, meetings help. I go to more meetings, don't get me wrong. I go to more meetings accidentally than most people do on purpose. But. So he said, until I could get a group started in Chicago, third, I decided I must, and this is very important, I must place this program above everything else, even my family, because I did not maintain my sobriety, I would lose my family anyway. Okay. So if I did not maintain my sobriety, I'd have no friends left. I had few enough at the time. Yes? Yes? Before you leave that story, you started out on 263, but on 262, it, it said, at the bottom of that page, it says, I stayed in Akron two or three weeks. They talked about how long it took Ed to get through the steps. He came to Akron two or three weeks trying to pick so much of the program. This is the day he's going back to Chicago. So in less than 21 days, you know, this story was, this man had been through the staff. I'm going to let you in a few minutes to sing on. Particularly old authors. There's not a lot of lead left in the pencil, but he'll scribble all night.
Stand up and praise the Lord forever and ever.